Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're continuing our occasional series where we talk about books by Floridians and about Florida with a conversation with historian Gary Mormino. In almost every significant index of American life, writes Mormino, Florida matters. His latest book, Dreams in the New Century, Instant Cities, Shattered Hopes, and Florida's Turning Point, charts a course through the first decade of the 21st century in Florida, years marked by staggering growth, political drama, and a devastating housing bust. In this book, Mormino, who's the Frankie Duckwall Professor of History Emeritus at the University of South Florida, takes a closer look at the political personalities, like former U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, who was a key figure in the controversial repatriation of Alion Gonzalez to Cuba, or Governor Jeb Bush, who ushered in an era of Republican dominance in Florida. Mormino also introduces us to the developers who rode a wave of growth and transformed the landscape, and the Floridians who are left to clean up the mess left by the collapse of the housing market and the foreclosure crisis. Gary, thanks for being here. appreciate it. Delighted to be here. Always happy to discuss Florida. Well, in the first part of your book, you write, I'm quoting here, in almost every significant index of American life, the sheer numbers and influence of the elderly and foreign-born, the old, the new nuances of race, the jigsaw patterns of residential life, the environmental challenges, the pursuit of happiness, and political melodrama, Florida matters. So to me, this book is about growth, a thousand plus people moving into the Sunshine State every day, and all of the issues you dig into, is that kind of how you approached it? Yes. I would add it also deals with loss, uh, sadly. It's a wild decade. I'm guessing most readers, listeners, live through that decade, 2000, 2010, and the highest highs, the lowest lows. So it's a magnificent decade to study because it, it's very compact, and uh, it was a lot of fun to write. Where did you get the idea, or when did you get the idea for the book? I had written a a previous book in 2006 called Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams that brought Florida from the end of World War II to 2000, really the beginning of what historians and and other folks have called the Florida dream, the the idea that there's something special about a state that has thousands of miles of of coastline, uh, swaying palm trees, balmy winters, and, and most significantly, the, the promise of a better life, or at least a better February. So in many ways, this book is a sequel to that. Uh, that mm-hmm. book ends on a very high note. In fact, if, if you look at the last 75 years of Florida, from the Great Depression in the late 1920s until 2006, 2007, Florida really had very few road bumps. And, and the Great Recession is kind of the climax of the book with all the aftershocks, opioid addiction, homelessness, et cetera. You talk about that era being a compact decade, but there's a lot in it, right? And I'm wondering how you stay focused on the recent past, the 2000 to 2010 era, when so much of what's happening now is affected by what happened then. Historians are always writing in the present. I mean, even though this could have been colonial Florida, you're still 
thinking about recent events. So uh, today, of course, I think most Floridians, if you ask, what's the greatest challenge to modern Florida? Folks say or should say uh, climate change uh, and growth. And, and those were also the issues that were beginning to emerge. If there's a word to describe the early years of the 21st century, it's confidence. And I love to ask audiences now, how many of you are confident about the future of Florida? And I'm telling you, many, many fewer hands or fewer, fewer hands uh, today than in 2000. Think about the, the year 2000. We had just won the Cold War a decade earlier. The Soviet Union fell without an, an apocalypse or Armageddon. We were in the uh, last year of three or four consecutive balanced budgets. Our grandchildren will probably never see a balanced budget again. There was just a great deal of confidence in America. We also survived Y2K. Everyone thought uh, the world was going to end. And if you remember, one of the big questions in the 2000 election was, how are we going to spend the peace dividend? All that money we're going to save not having to build bigger bombs and faster rockets. How are we going to save? And, and it just kind of shattered, to say the least, mm. uh, by the end of the decade. Right. I mean, it didn't take too long, right? It was basically 9-11 um, put a stop to that. 9-11 was, was a dramatic moment in Florida. And it, it's an interesting question to ask. Why did half of the terrorists train in Florida? I mean, you could have easily learned to fly in other states. And it might be the, the simple reason demographics. Almost everyone is from somewhere else. That could be our state slogan. It's often followed, almost everyone is from somewhere else. If you're a native here, you've seen so much change, you feel like you're from somewhere else. But the terrorists often went to public libraries, used public computers, uh, brought bolt cutters on airplanes. The post-9-11 world, in terms of airlines, libraries, confidence, security, is, is a different world today. It's interesting, though. I mean, there are so many connections. I, I find as a journalist, there are many connections to stories that somehow have ties to Florida in some way. And even, you know, reading this book, not just the decade you're focused on, but even before that, you, you reference Florida at one point, I think, as being a Ponzi state, talking about <laughs> yes. the aftermath of the Great Recession and the housing bust. And Carlo Ponzi, who I learned from this book, was briefly a Florida man himself before being arrested and deported back in 1926. So it is a state that just seems to be a magnet for all kinds of people. It is. Uh, I mean, think about this. Every single day, practically from 2000 to 2008, a thousand people were coming every day. There was one moment, I think, in 2009, 2010, when we were losing population, which is impossible in Florida. The Great Recession, it's an ugly time in, in Florida. I mean, how many Floridians had heard of the word opioids before 2009, 2010. So many Floridians were dying and Americans were dying that for one brief moment, our uh, longevity rate was declining, our mortality mm -hmm. rate increasing in that sense, but also homelessness. That was, that was an issue before the Great Recession, but the Great Recession kind of spiked everything. It, it was a very ugly time in, in Florida. Even though Dreams in the New Century is kind of bursting at the seams, and it's 475 pages, <laughs> yes. pretty dense print, 
There are still some things that don't really get much of a mention. For example, what was happening on the Space Coast. How did you decide what to leave out? You know, I left hundreds of pages on the cutting room floor. I did have a, a potential chapter on that mm-hmm. because that, I mean, to me, Brevard County, where Cape Canaveral is, is the poster chapter of Florida in many ways. I mean, think of this. I think on the eve of World War II, Brevard County had about 10,000 people. I think it's 400,000 or, or more today. But in the 1950s and 60s, every week you would have arriving uh, rocket scientists, uh, astronauts, and they're overachieving children. And Brevard County's just transformed into this kind of Cold War bulwark at, at Cape Canaveral. I mean, it's interesting thinking about the Space Coast, too. This may be um, something for your, your sequel, uh, 2010 to 2020, right? Because the the resurgence of the space industry, the private space industry, in some ways mirrors a little bit what was happening, as you point out. Gary, you've spent about four decades plus here yourself. Has the pace of change in Florida caught you a bit by surprise? It has, and yet I'm forever fascinated. I spent the year 1980-81 in uh, Rome and Florence, Italy as a Fulbrighter. And at that time, I was an immigration historian studying Italian immigrants and then Ybor City. And I remember going to the embassy library in Rome, via Veneto, and 8081 was an incredible year in Florida history. You had uh, uh, Marielle, the boat lift. You had uh, a race riot in Florida. And I remember coming back saying to colleagues, you know, if, if I get tenure, I'm going to switch kind of academic careers to Florida history. That, to me, it was the, the most fascinating place I'd ever been. I mean, uh, and even returning, there are new shopping centers, et cetera. So Florida is just an ever-fascinating state. Uh, now being a senior citizen, that's a fascinating subchapter in Florida. Almost every chapter, I think, has lots of subchapters, but many of them dealing with senior citizens and mm-hmm. new, new forms of uh, living. Places like Seaside and Celebration also mark that era. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with historian Gary Mormino about his new book, Dreams in the New Century, Instant Cities, Shattered Hopes, and Florida's Turning Point. Mormino's book takes a closer look at Florida from 2000 to 2010, a decade that began with a presidential election recount and saw the state grow at breakneck speed before plunging into a housing crisis and recession. The conversation continues in just a moment. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking with Gary Mormino about his new book, Dreams in the New Century, Instant Cities, Shattered Hopes, and Florida's Turning Point. In his book, Mormino takes a closer look at the start of the 21st century in Florida, an era marked by some of the highest highs and lowest lows the state has seen. The idea that Florida matters politically is something you kick off the book with dealing with the 2000 election recount and then segueing into the Bush family political dynasty 9-11, as you mentioned before, and the political ramifications of that war on terror. And then later in the book, you dig into the political careers of Mel Martinez, Charlie Crist, Alex Sink, Rick Scott, and others. Who are the biggest political personalities that make up the Florida story of that decade for you? This is the first book that I've written that I've talked about politics. I'm, I'm kind of a political junkie, but had always defined myself as a social historian. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, social events. But uh, I, I love Florida politics. And Tampa Bay was the center of the political drama 
of that decade, 2000, 2010. Consider every single election in that decade had at least one Tampa Bay resident. So in 2002, it was Bill McBride, the Democrat against Jeb Bush, the Republican. 2006, both candidates were from Tampa Bay. Charlie Crist from St. Petersburg. Charlie Crist as a Republican in 2006. And uh, Jim Davis, former congressman, uh, took Sam Gibbons' seat as a Democrat. Twenty years earlier, we'd be talking today about Governor Davis's administration. He would have been a lock. This was a decade of Republican supremacy uh, in Florida. No child since 1998 has known a Democratic governor in Florida. That, that's never happened before. And by the way, it, it, it continues with uh, Alex Sink in 2010, who was the wife of uh, Bill McBride running, probably should have defeated Rick Scott. Rick Scott is such an amazing character. He had only arrived in Florida, I think, in 2004. Six years later, he's the governor. No one knew him. I think he spent $75 million of his own fortune. He also came with great baggage. That That is such a quintessentially Florida story in some ways, though, isn't it? I mean, oh. there are so many stories about people coming here with wealth or not and making something of themselves in the Sunshine State. I mean, think about that. If you're campaigning in Texas, you're probably going to be talking about your great-great-grandfather who fought at the Alamo or who was a rancher. Roots are important. Rick Scott is the quintessential story of someone redefining himself. As you may recall, he also had baggage. I think he had the largest corporate fine in history and managed to redefine himself. It was also the Great Recession, and he kept on message. Jobs, jobs, jobs. That was his campaign. You also reference some larger-than-life political personalities in this book, but they're from a different era, and it's interesting you talk about 20, 2000 to 2010 being the decade of Republicans kind of really asserting their dominance, because before that, to your point, it had been a, a state that was very much driven by Democrats, and a couple of the people that stand out are Lawton Charles and Janet Reno, but they just really belong to a different era of politics, right? I love the Janet Reno story. Uh, J- Janet Reno may be the most authentic Floridian. If there's a place in the Florida Hall of Fame, Janet Reno was the daughter of two competing newspaper uh, parents, one for the Miami News, the other for uh, the Miami Herald. Her mother, Janet Wood Reno, built the family home on the edge of the Everglades by herself, and she had no experience in construction. She'd go to the library and get a book on plumbing and uh, Janet becomes the, the top legal position in Miami-Dade County, but most famous as uh, President Bill Clinton's attorney general. And there's mm-hmm. an event, it may be the most significant political event in Florida history, although seemingly has nothing to do with politics, but everything with politics, the Elian affair. Thanksgiving weekend, 1999, Elian Gonzalez, a 10-year-old Cuban refugee, is found clinging to a life boy outside uh, Fort Lauderdale. He's rescued and then placed in his relatives' homes in Little Havana. And this immediately becomes a political issue. What do you do? Uh, Kind of wet foot, dry foot. Think about the two moral questions raised here. I love my son so much, I'd be willing 
to give him his freedom and he'd be in exile. Or I'm never going to allow politics to separate my family. Mm-hmm. And what's the right answer? Uh, Attorney General Reno and President Clinton ruled that Elion should be repatriated with his father in, in Cuba. His mother, by the way, died on the voyage to, to Florida. Cubans uh, vowed this is the revenge vote, and it probably tipped the election to uh, Bush. You also have religious overtones, uh, if listeners know uh, La Cachita, the patroness of Cuba. This has all the earmarks that hundreds of years earlier, the Virgin rescued three people on stormy seas in Cuba. So that race is just as melodramatic as you can imagine. Late that night, November 2000, they said it's too close to call. After calling it for Bush, after calling it for Gore, and then uh, Dan Rather said Florida has just wobbled into Weirdsville. Indeed. And then Reno ran for uh, for governor herself in 2002, which uh, that's another note I, I wasn't really fully aware of. But I think there are some similarities between her campaign driving around the state and then Lawton Charles when, when he ran, uh, you know, some, some years before, right? That sort of retail politics, getting out there and, and uh, showing your face. He uh, walked Florida. He acquired the nickname Walkin' Lawton. I think it was 1970. And he is the, he's the last Democratic governor. Uh, actually, technically, there's an asterisk there. He died one month before his term ended in 1999, and uh, Buddy McKay hmm. was governor for one month. But it's a great trivia question. Uh, related to Tampa Bay, by the way, two trivia questions which also address the collapse of the Democratic Party. Who's the last Democratic uh, Speaker of the House? It was Peter Rudy Wallace of St. Petersburg in 1990s. And so uh, it's a decade of complete Republican domination. And you mentioned earlier the, the kind of increasing importance of the senior vote. And you also highlight 2004 in this book as the year that the villages became a must-stop on the campaign trail when uh, President Bush visited. I wonder if you just kind of elaborate a little bit on the influence of the senior vote on politics in Florida and nationally. Well, this has been true for many decades. Uh, USF Susan McManus has talked about this uh, many times on the station. But the senior, first of all, seniors vote, and, and they vote often. Uh, it's the most reliable cohort that's going to vote. And they clearly tilted to the Republican side by the, the, the 21st century. And uh, the villages is the perfect symbol of this. The villages was one of these kind of, uh, it was originally a trailer park camp on 301 and 441, I think, and has become one of the largest senior communities in, in the United States. And you're right, uh, President Bush visited there. And now, if you're running for office in Florida statewide, or you're running for the presidency, it is your first stop. It's, it's almost become a, a ceremonial holiday in Florida. What I wonder, do you make of the era since 2010, the era of Donald Trump, Governor Ron DeSantis, who conservatives like to call America's governor? Do you think, Gary, that Florida is just having a moment politically, or is the Sunshine State going to continue to shape the political landscape of the United States from here on out? 
Well, if, there, if there's one theme in the book, it's what you mentioned in the beginning. Florida matters. And Florida has never had an American president, vice president, speaker of the House, or president of the U.S. Senate. And, and uh, I don't think there's any question that DeSantis is eyeing the presidency. I don't understand the modern Republican Party the, the, of conservatism. The idea used to be that loco knows best. And now it's kind of a top-down government. He's very popular uh, among the Republican base. Uh, he's very smart. And uh, in many ways, he's out-trumping Trump. Uh, so uh, we, we haven't seen the last of, of Ron DeSantis. Let's pivot then and talk a little bit about growth. On page 227, you write, behind the manicured greens and colonnaded clubhouses, developers impose their will on the Florida landscape, creating irresistible names, Rookery at Marco and Pelican Marsh, Esplanade Golf and Country Club and Fiddler's Creek, Burnt Store Marina and Tiburon, and irrepressible dreams. No one dreamed bigger and transformed those dreams into golf communities than Alfred Hoffman Jr. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this developer Hoffman and, and kind of what he represents in shaping the Florida landscape that we know today? I bet not one in a hundred readers recognize the name. What a fascinating character. He's the son of an Austrian butcher. And uh, as a child, his job was to dress chickens at his father's uh, butcher shop in Chicago, Illinois. A rather messy job, by the way. I grew up mm. on a chicken farm. Uh, I, I know a little bit about chickens. And Al Hoffman, I mean, sterling credentials, Ivy League education. I think he joined the Air Force or Navy, was a kind of a top gun pilot. He returns to become a developer in Florida. And he's the best known developer who, who eyes a new region in Florida that hasn't been touched by the magic wand of development, Southwest Florida. If you were here in the 1970s or 1980s, you can maybe remember going up I-75 from Naples, and there was a vast stretch of land between Naples and Fort Myers that, that had not been developed. That's the area uh, best probably known as Benita Springs. is probably the, one of the better-known communities there that was a small community. And I, I quote him from a Florida Trend article. He said, nothing can stop it. And he's talking about development in Southwest Florida. All the stars were in alignment in the 80s and 90s and particularly 2000, 2005. I think it's 2003 or 2004. The first baby boomer turned 65 and could get Social Security. So you had this huge first wave of the baby boom retiring. Uh, property values are high so they can sell their homes and the Midwest, the Northeast, and moved to Florida. The rage at that time was golf design communities. And the idea of buying a, an expensive home in Southwest Florida was just irresistible. Uh, and you'd, you'd be basically a home on a golf course, maybe the most unenvironmental idea ever. But he's also a perfect fall guy for Florida. His company uh, turns bankrupt uh, by the end of the decade. They own hundreds of thousands of acres uh, at this time. So Hoffman is a fascinating figure, but there are hundreds of others uh, in, the, in the development business. Then, I mean, you, you kind of allude to this with Hoffman's company going bankrupt, but, you know, in the, towards the end of that first decade, you were writing about America fell into that recession, uh, the bottom fell out of the housing market, 
And you write about the devastating impact on Florida where the economy is really highly dependent on growth. And one of the people you quote is a fellow named Paul Rays who coined the uh, term ecology of foreclosure. I wonder if you just talk briefly about how that played out and, and sort of how it features in your book. I knew Paul. We, I didn't realize uh, he, even he was writing a book at the time. We would have coffee once a week in uh, St. Petersburg. And uh, he, he walked the walk and talked the talk. His father had a position. His father, I think, was a Puerto Rican immigrant. And his mm-hmm. job was to come in and trash out foreclosed homes. First of all, what a, ba- a sad job, a bad job, because typically when people have to leave their homes and, and a bank has taken over, they're not terribly concerned with what they leave behind. Paul worked for his father uh, mowing the lawns. You know, the, the, the grass would be three feet high, and he'd talk about how to detect when you've gone over a fire ant hill, et cetera, what happens when a swimming pool hasn't been clean in a year. But, mm-hmm. but I highly recommend Paul's book. I, I also had a story there I thought was one of the saddest stories. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a, such a grim period, the, the, the Great Recession. And I think it was in Pasco County, sheriffs had to foreclose homes. They would go out with a notice and ask people to, you know, to leave. And they'd already been notified. And mm-hmm. the story is he knocks on the door. The woman answers and her husband says, who is it, honey? And he could tell by the tone, and he whispered to her, you haven't told him yet, have you, that they're going to have to leave the house. The house has been yeah. foreclosed. In new subdivisions, and particularly places like Pasco County, Hillsborough, Pinellas counties, there'd be whole blocks that had been foreclosed. At the end of your book, Gary, you talk about some of the questions that still need to be asked about Florida's breakneck growth. Even after the lessons of the Great Recession and the housing bust, you write, how do we preserve the things that drew so many of us here? Can a state possibly alter a culture of growth that created prosperity and abundance and preserve Florida's cultural and natural heritage, the distinctive historical architecture and traditions that provide a sense of identity for our neighborhoods, towns, and cities, what will happen to the once pristine bays and springs, the sugar white beaches, and the splendid estuaries? I wonder what you think the answer is to that question. I don't know if anyone has an answer. To me, that's the critical challenge in modern Florida. Often when I, I'll, I'll speak to a group, I'll ask them, you know, how many of you feel confident about Florida? And the reason we all came here was because of the climate and all these extraordinary features of Florida, the state parks, the uncluttered beaches, et cetera. And Florida, the lack of a state income tax. And, so and that, yes, that did I tell you we have no state income tax? Yes. I'd like to ask listeners, I mean, are you feeling confident the Florida legislature is addressing climate change and sea level rise? We're the most vulnerable state in America for sea level rise. And if you wanted a symbol, a tragic symbol of this, it's Surfside last summer. About And we, we're continuing to build more and more high-rise condos on reclaimed land. We need a, a state conversation about this. I think the governor could turn this into a great issue uh, because I'm not sure we have the answers, but we need to be talking about this. It's alarming, I think. Uh, as the father of two daughters... I'd like to be an optimist about this. It's an old-fashioned virtue or fable that I want to leave the world a better place than I found it. How many Floridians could say that today? 
Well, Gary Momino is the Frank E. Duckwall Professor of History Emeritus at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. We've been talking about his book, Dreams in the New Century, Instant City, Shattered Hopes, and Florida's Turning Point. Gary, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.